It's been a joy the last few weeks getting to preach to y'all. Thank you for listening. Thank you for many of you telling me stories of how the Lord has worked through the words of 1 Corinthians. It's a reminder to me particularly um, of just how much God does honor the preaching and the hearing of his word. I'll frequently preach a sermon and then go home and just be like, what a dud. Like, what a... Man, I'd, I'd feel like something ought to have gone better with that. And then someone will come up and say, you know, God spoke to me through that. And it's just a reminder that he works through broken vessels. He works through imperfect sermons and imperfect people. And he is gracious to bring his grace and his love and his joy to his people. I pray that that is what he will do this morning. I pray that that is what he will do every Sunday in this church. This is going to be a little bit of a strange sermon, at least for me, um, we're going to be preaching really on one verse. Um, this verse 13 of, of the chapter, which is a beautiful verse. It is a powerful verse, but it's also very simple. And the goal is going to be not that we try to pull some hidden meaning out of it. Um, it's not going to be that we try to make it more complex than it needs to be. Uh, but we're going to just meditate on the simple things that Paul has to say to, say to us here. We're going to meditate on faith and hope and love and what those things mean in our lives and what they tell us about the God that we serve and what he's called us to. So this is actually going to be a weird sermon in that I'm going to say, as we're meditating on these things, if God is speaking to you about something in particular, just you know, think about that and write something down about that maybe if, if you want to. Um, and if you miss a little bit of the next thing I say, that's fine. I want you to just be meditating on these things, considering the beauty of these things that God is telling us. So let's stand for the reading of God's holy word. If you're using the Pew Bible, uh, it's going to be on page 960. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 13. And we're going to read the whole chapter uh, to give a little bit of a recap of where we've come from. So we'll start on page 959. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. 
but the greatest of these is love. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would work through your word, that you would speak to us through your word, show us beautiful things in it. I pray that you would move in us by your spirit to make us people of faith, to make us people of hope, to make us people of love. I pray that you would help us to understand, and I pray that you would help that understanding to just flow into a life overwhelmed by the love that you have already showed us. We thank you, Lord, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Faith, hope, and love. The New Testament gives us a number of lists in various places of qualities that we ought to have, of things that we ought to pursue. For instance, in the letter, uh, in Paul's first letter to Timothy, in chapter 3, where he's talking about what overseers of the church ought to be like, he lists, I think, about 22 different characteristics that ought to be true, depending on how you count them. They must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and he, he goes on. There are these extensive things that he says it is important that you be thorough when you look at your overseers, your elders, and they, they need to have this thoroughly Christ-like way of living. They need to have been thoroughly transformed by him. But I think as we look at those other lists, as we look at what Paul says there and what we see about the general character that he says needs to be true of Christians, it can all narrow down to these three important things that he lists in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and love. We've already said Paul is not disparaging spiritual gifts. He is not disparaging abilities or things that we strive for in order to share the good word, in order to care for people. But it all boils down. There are things that are going to pass away. There are gifts that are going to pass away, abilities that we have that will no longer be needed when the fullness comes. But these three things abide, faith, hope, and love. These are things that will remain when the flashier, when the more impressive gifts that we strive for will pass away. And so we value these three and we pray that God would equip us more specifically as he sees fit. But we, we look at these three and we say, I want this to be true of me. I want to focus on these things so that God would work through me in whatever ways he would choose. But we focus on these three, faith, hope, and love. And in calling us to these three things, Jesus is calling us to himself the object of our faith, to the object of our hope, to the one who has showed us what love is. So I'll tell you, I have nothing impressive to teach this morning. I have no new amazing revelation. But I pray that we would grow in those three things. I'm probably not going to say anything that you haven't heard before, but I pray that the Spirit would be working so that hearing it anew, it would just get deeper, it would get more ingrained, it would get more a part of your soul, that you are a person of faith, a person of faith, hope, and love. I think if I asked each of you whether you would like to have a stronger faith, whether you would like to have a more confident hope, a more Christ-like love, I think we would each say, yes, that is what I want. If I am in Christ, my hope is that I would be more like him, that I would have a, a more 
confident faith and hope and a, a more thorough love, I am fully aware of how short I fall. Maybe you feel that same way. And so our hope is that Christ would be working through us to say, I am making you a person like this. I'm reminded of uh, the words of a man in Mark 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I think we can say that with these three things as well. Lord, I have faith. Lord, I have hope. Lord, I have love. But Lord, would you help my lack of faith? Lord, would you help my lack of hope? Lord, would you help where I fall so far short of your love? So before we get to these three things, and we will look at them individually, it's helpful to look at the uh, syntax of this passage, of how the sentence is put together, um, because it is a little bit unusual. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Um, So there are some questions. If faith, hope, and love remain, what is it that does not remain? And what does it mean that these things do remain? In the context of the preceding verses that we've talked about in previous weeks, it's clear that what he is saying does not remain are some of the spiritual gifts. Tongues, for instance, or prophecy, um, this gift of knowledge that he speaks about, that these things are passing away. He's already said that. But when those things pass away, faith, hope, and love will remain. And what's amazing is that when he says remain, he seems to mean that they will remain. They will remain not just today, not just tomorrow, but these things are eternal realities. And so we start to ask those questions. What does it mean to have faith when we are in heaven, when we are face-to-face with Jesus? What does it mean to have faith then? How does that transform the way that we think about faith? What does it mean that in the new heavens and new earth, when everything is made right and we are face-to-face with God, we are going to have hope? That's what Paul is saying, but it is kind of beyond our our way of thinking about things. We, we don't even know how to deal with hope in a way in which you are already there. I think love makes a little bit more sense, and that's going to help tie all of those things together. But this is what he's saying, is that these things remain. They abide, and so they are trustworthy. They are good things to put our efforts into to be, to be people of these three things, people of faith, people of hope, people of love. To briefly also mention the first two words of this sentence, so now, um, which do not have a whole ton actually to say, but we want to avoid saying too much with them. Um, I'm going to say that those words are a logical so now and not a temporal so now. And if that doesn't make sense, what I, what I mean is there are words that show where Paul is in his argument that he is saying, You've heard everything that I've said up until now about love and about the gifts and about how life in Christ works and love. Um, So now, now that we have talked about all that stuff, now that you get all of that stuff, um, it should be clear to you that faith, hope, and love abide, and the greatest of these is love. So it's a logical. He's not saying, so now, at the moment that I am writing, um, these other things have passed away, but faith, hope, and love remain. Which is, every once in a while, you'll hear that um, presented as, as a way of asking the question, well, why don't we see uh, prophecy in the biblical sense happening? Why don't we see tongues happening in the biblical sense? I think there are good answers to those uh, questions, but I don't think this is the place to go for it. So just to, just to break up that 
uh, misunderstanding there. So, faith. What is faith? What does faith look like? What we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through these three words um, and look at different stories throughout the Bible. So if you have your Bible, keep it open, uh, keep it around. We're going to be jumping around a little bit. And looking at examples of faith, looking at examples of unfaith and of hope and of love, and of seeing how God worked in those places. So we're going to start with Genesis 3, uh, verses 1 to 7, which probably is not the place that you would have thought to have gone uh, to talk about faith. It was page 2, by the way. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. When the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves lowing cloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the, cool of, in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So what we see here is this first instance in the Bible in which the question essentially is asked of people, are you going to have faith? When God presents this command the question essentially is, are you going to have faith in me? Not just faith to believe that this particular command makes sense. They don't seem to have really understood why they shouldn't eat of this tree, except that God had told them not to. But even more centrally, do you have faith in who I am? Do you have faith that I'm a good God? Do you have faith that I love you, that I want the best for you? Do you have faith that what I have said to you and said for you is actually going to be for your benefit and for, for your good. And Adam and Eve, in that first question of, are you going to have faith in God, answered, we will not. We are going to have more faith in the words of this serpent who is saying that God is depriving us of something. We are going to have more faith in my own ability to judge, is this a good idea or not? Is this going to be for my benefit or not? And so this becomes the question throughout Scripture. Are you going to have faith in God or are you going to believe that what he has said, that who he is, is fundamentally not for your good? That he is against you? That what you need to do instead is to find your own way to make your own decisions, to rebel against him like Adam and Eve did. We're going to look forward a little bit more now to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. Uh, It's on page 8. Now the Lord said to Abraham, 
Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. So we see here the same kind of question. Are you going to believe that who I am is good? That what I have told you is good and trustworthy and true and for your benefit and is going to be a blessing to you? And in this case, so differently from Adam and Eve, in this case, Abram, what does it say? So Abram went. He hears the word of the Lord and he says, yes, I will receive this good word. I will trust you. I will go. It's an amazing thing. If you think about the history of humanity, for a man to hear the the voice of the Lord and to actually trust, so often we follow in Adam and Eve's footsteps and say, yeah, but this thing looks really good. Yeah, but can I really trust you? Did, Did you really say that? Abram would have had abundant reasons to take that path, to not believe God, to, to flee from him like Adam and Eve did. Right? Abram was a man, we assume, based on his father, um, who did not know God, did not worship God. He was a worshiper of other gods, we're told. He was a man who was filled with sin, as we see throughout his story. He was not a perfect person that God chose to fulfill his plan to fulfill his promise. He was a man who probably had a sense of shame around the barrenness of his wife. That he was a person who the gods had not dealt well with, that he had no heir, and that a random person from his household who was not his child was going to become the one who inherited all that he had. So he had these reasons that he could have said, of course God wouldn't be for me, But this is what faith does, is is it hears the word of the Lord, it sees who he is, and it says, yes, you are good, Lord. You are good. I will trust you. To jump to the New Testament, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. is on page 941. This is Paul speaking. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift, through whom the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So this is the shape of the biblical story. This is One of those things that gives the story meaning is this question of faith. When you hear God's word to you, when you see who he is, 
when you judge yourself in comparison to his holiness and find yourself wanting? Will you hear his good word? Will you receive it and trust it and believe that he is good and that he is loving as he has said that he is? And as Paul takes this even further in 1 Corinthians, he says, that was, at the very beginning, that was the question. Are you going to trust God? Are you going to have faith? That was the question with Abraham. It was that question with Moses. It was the question with David. Are you going to believe what I have told you and are you going to trust who I am? And that even now is the case. As we gather as a church, is the question, are you going to believe that I am good? Are you going to believe that what I have told you is for your benefit? And this is the amazing thing, as I mentioned earlier, even when we are face to face with him in the new heavens and the new earth, with all things made right, with the tear wiped away from every eye, faith will be the thing that is still, a thing that is still true of us. It will be something that we still are doing as we see him and say, yes, I will draw near to you. Yes, as you have called me by grace, I will trust in your goodness. I will trust in your word. Day after day to all eternity saying, God, I know that I can trust you. I know that I can have faith in you. And Paul says, faith abides. It remains. Even though in this world we think of faith as something that is maybe blind, right? We, we have that expression of blind faith. You have faith when you don't actually know something. Some, often a way that it's put or thought of. But I think as, as Paul is writing, as the, as the Bible puts it, faith is something in which we ought to have a sense of surety, in which we ought to have a sense that, no, this is something confident. This is someone who I know. This is someone I can draw near to and trust because I know that he is good. I know that he loves me. And so he asked the question, how am I doing with faith? Am I a person who is growing in faith, a person who is knowing more and more day after day that yes, I can trust God. In every part of my life, in every difficult decision, in every time that I am tempted to say, no, I need to find a better, a more practical way to do things, a way that will be better for me. Am I growing in my ability to trust him and say, no, you are good. Your glory endures forever. Your goodness endures forever. I can trust you. Is that the kind of people that we are, that we trust him that deeply, that we have that kind of ingrained belief that who he is and what he has said is trustworthy? Second, hope. Let's look again at Abraham. We're going to read from Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. It's page 942. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign. Sorry, I'm reading from chapter 5. That was a beautiful passage that had nothing to do with what I was saying. Um, 
I'm going to finish it. You know, it's a great passage. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now let's read the one that I was supposed to read. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verses 18 to 21. In hope, he, that is Abraham, believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is hope. So hope is closely tied to faith. Often when we hear the word hope in scripture, it is connected with the word faith. We might say that if faith is trusting in God, despite often the difficulty of doing so, despite the reasons that seem so so strong to us that we ought not to do so, if faith is trusting in God, then hope is faith exercising patience toward a particular end. Hope is faith moving in a direction. Hope is faith with its eyes on something that is to come. Here, hope, Paul says, abides, it remains. Even when the gifts of the Spirit, even when so many things that we put our effort in, put our hope in, when they fall away, even then, hope remains. Abraham lived in this way that, that was so, his, his faith was in who God is, it is in what God said. And when God spoke to him, he gave this promise, right? In you, well, A, you'll, you'll be first, you know, Abram, you know, you'll be father of many, but then later on he's renamed. You'll be Abraham, the father of many nations, the father of many peoples. And he says, you will have, all of these descendants, you who are 100 years old, whose wife is barren and unable to have children. And not only that, but you will be a blessing to others. And in you, all nations of the world will be blessed. So Abraham put his faith both in God as who he was, in what God had said, and in this goal that he was moving towards knowing in some ways that the end of that goal would not come even within his lifetime, that it was something far off in the future, something that God had promised that was good, but that seemed so far away. And Abraham said, yet I will have faith, I will have hope and move toward that thing because I believe that however long it takes, God is able to do it and that it is for my good, for the good of my children, and it is worth putting my faith in. It is worth putting my hope in. And Paul says, this is the kind of people that we want to be. This is the kind of hope that we want to have. A kind of people who look to the future at what we have been told was true. Even if it seems far away. Even if it seems barely real right now. And who say, no, I'm going to hold on to that promise. Hold on to that hope. And I'm going to live in such a way that I am moving toward it. We're going to read from Jeremiah, chapter 33, page 662 in your pew Bible. This is Jeremiah 33, verses 14 to 16. 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. In the midst of this story that flowed from Abraham into Israel, into the people of God, the kingdom that was formed in Israel, then two kingdoms, and then the fairly quick decline of those kingdoms as they failed to put their faith in God, they started asking this question, where is our hope? How can we have hope in what God has said when everything that it seems like he wanted to flourish is falling apart? God had promised to David that you will have a son and and your son will reign forever. Right? You will never lack a son sitting on the throne of Judah And whether Jeremiah was writing, it's not 100% clear, right before the fall of the kingdom of Judah or right after the fall of the kingdom of Judah, it was pretty clear to those who are reading him, this hope is not really seeming like it's going to happen. God seems like either he's given up on us or he's failed us. And either way, maybe we need to look for a different solution. And at that particular moment, Jeremiah brings this amazing word that says, there is more to the story than you have yet figured out, that you have yet heard. There is something coming. There is a hope in the future that you can still believe and still have faith in because God is still good and he is still for you, even though you have messed things up pretty incredibly. This is one of the most beautiful times in the Old Testament that we start to see, oh, there is someone coming. Not just something coming, but there is someone coming who will bless Judah, who will bless Israel, who will be a fulfillment of that promise that was given to Abraham. In you will all of the nations of the world be blessed. There is someone coming. And of course, We know who that was, and they had some idea of who that was, but they lived with that hope. In the midst of being exiled from their country, in the midst of not knowing what was going to happen to them, in the midst of death and of destruction, Jeremiah speaks these words, there's something coming, there's someone coming, and you can put your hope in him, even in the midst of all of this. Throughout the Bible, hope drove, hope drives the people of God. It drove Abraham as he thought about that promise that was set before him. It drove David as he strove to bring about this kingdom that, that would honor and glorify God. And as he failed in so many ways later on, and he failed morally with Bathsheba, and he, his, his kingdom quickly afterward failed and in the exile, they had hope that there was someone coming. And as, as they were conquered by nation after nation, by Babylon, by Persia, by Greece, by Rome, it started to seem like, is this hope really true? And the writers of Scripture said, no, hold on to that hope. And Paul says to us, 
now, today. Hold on to hope because hope remains. Hope endures. Hope abides. So we ask again, are we a people of hope? Are we a people whose hearts and whose eyes are set firmly on what is coming? On what God says to us is going to be a good and a beautiful future. That he has plans that every tear will be wiped away from every eye. That there will be no sin, that there will be no unrighteousness, that there will be no injustice, that there will be a city in which we are present with him. Do we have that hope? And again, he says, not only does it abide now, but it remains blanket statement. And that even then, in a way that I, I can't even start to try to unpack or figure out really, is even there, face to face with God, we will have hope. We'll say, this is amazing. We have seen you face to face. We have the full joy of your presence. And yet, even moving forward, there, there is even hope somehow. That the, the, the perfect is, is just getting better somehow. This, I, I don't know how to say it. I'm at the edge of my ability to understand. But God says through Paul, hope abides. And so now, as people who live in a time when we, we are not face to face, we are in a time when we think about hope and we say that is not something that comes easy. That is something that is often difficult and often put off by so many other concerns and put off by so many things that really make it look like our hope is not going to be sure. And Paul says, this is the thing to focus on. Not, not those gifts, not the abilities that you have, not things that you think are going to be important, but no, be a person of hope. Draw near to God in hope, knowing that he will do what he has said he would do. Are you a person who takes joy in that? Are you a person who, when you think about what God is doing and where we are going, you are filled not with despair, but with comfort, knowing that he is bringing us where he has promised to bring us? Are you a person who takes joy in that, who thinks about that frequently, because that is what we are called to do, and that is what God has said is true, and we can trust him? Finally, love. So faith, hope, and love abide, these three, but the greatest of these, these three amazing things, these three entirely worthwhile things to focus on, the greatest of these is love. And in this context, he's speaking uh, not primarily of God's love for us, although that is certainly relevant, but he's speaking of the love that we show. Right? We are the ones exercising uh, faith. We are the ones exercising hope. We are the ones here exercising love. So it's referring to our love, our love for God and our love for others. So how is love the greatest of these three? I would say that love is what faith and hope point toward. Love is the direction in which faith and hope move. When we exercise faith, we are drawing near to God and trust of his love in his goodness and his mercy towards us. When we exercise hope, we are exercising faith with patience as we wait for the revealing of the fullness of God's promises to us, the promises of his love, the, the word and the fullness of his love that we will see. 
of living forever with him, of the tears being wiped away, of no brokenness, no sin, the full joy and relational closeness that we will have. It's moving towards his love. And the greatest of these three things is love. As we exercise love, as we are a people of love, we're not only imitating God as he first loved us, but we are enacting his love in the world. Paul has this amazing thing that he says in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself for me. So as he is showing the love of God, he says it is actually God himself, Christ himself, loving through him. And so as we love, we have communion with God, doing what he did and being his hands and feet to live out the love that he has for those around us. The greatest of these things is love. That we somehow, mysteriously, incredibly, actually become the hands and feet of God, showing the love that he has, that he has already showed us and that he is showing those around us. So, as we've been doing the last few weeks, we ask that question, am I a person of love? Am I a person who shows love? Am I a person who knows God's love for me, who rejoices in it and pours it out as he has so richly poured it out towards me? Am I a person who, as I think about the way that I live, the way that I think, the way that I speak, that the word I would use to describe those things is love? Not just any love, but a love that looks like Jesus. A love that is kind and patient, that does not seek its own way, that does not rejoice with wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. A love like that which Paul has described, which is seen most clearly in Jesus. Are we a people of that kind of love? What Paul's calling us to is not to either despair that we are not that kind of people, nor to rest in what we already have, but to be constantly saying, God, would you make me more a person of love? God, would you make me more like Jesus? God, would you take this heart that so frequently pursues other things, that so frequently fails to have the kind of faith that it needs to in you, so frequently loses sight of the hope that it has, that so frequently loves things, excuse me, that are not directed towards you and fails to love you as you so deserve to be loved. He's saying, put your, set your faith, sorry, not set your faith, set your eyes on those things, on faith, hope, and love, and strive to look more like Jesus as he has loved us. Love holds these three things together. I'm going to close with a very brief reading from Psalm 33, and then we'll pray. The psalmist says, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his steadfast love. He sees us, he knows us. And as we hope in his steadfast love, again, these three things, faith, hope, and love being tied together in the love of Christ towards us and the love that we show in response. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope 
in his steadfast love.